six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon and welcome to the Friday, November 4th, 2022 edition of A Public Affair. My name is Patty Peltakos and I'll be your host this hour. I'm sitting in today for regular Friday host Esty Denure. And WORT listener, today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking your questions and comments during this edition of A Public Affair. On today's show, we'll be talking about food and politics, which can only mean one thing, that today's guest is Marion Nessel. Marion will be talking about her just-published autobiography and, of course, food and politics, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Marion's professional title is Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University. Somehow, I don't think that her professional title encapsulates the years of energy Marion has poured into her research, studies, and public speaking about food, nutrition, and public health, and into her writing. Slow Cooked is the 15th book Marion has written or co-edited. Her books include Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning, and Pet Food Politics, The Chihuahua in the Coal Mine. As Marion writes in Slow Cooked, she allows three years for each book. That's researching, writing, and then, of course, book production. Many years ago, I worked in book publishing, and I have to say that Marion's ability to produce well-written books on this schedule is phenomenal. As a reader, I imagine I can hear Marion's voice when I'm reading her writing. Marion's writing voice is strong and clear. Marion's voice is strong and clear partly because she is an amazing researcher and investigator. Her background in molecular biology, along with all of her training in nutrition and public policy, are always present in her writing. Marion's voice is also strong and clear because she wants you, WORT listener, to understand and care about what she's got to say about food and nutrition and public health. Marion could have been, and to me in many ways is, an investigative journalist. She follows the money trails that have made such a mess of our food system. And, WORT listener, if you don't think there's a lot of money funneling through the food system, well, we've got a lot to talk about. Marion Nessel, welcome to A Public Affair. Oh, glad to be here. Oh, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So, Marion, you have been writing nonfiction books about food for quite a long time. So why did you decide at this point that it was time to write an autobiography? Oh, it's not an autobiography. Well, the first, the first okay. thing I had, the first thing I had to learn was the difference between oh a my memoir God. and a, okay, and a memoir, biography. memoir. It's a memoir, which means that it's about m- memory. Yes, it's not necessarily about fact. And in fact, when I'm being really facetious, I refer to it as my first work of fiction. <laughs> um, you know, what happened was I was. Um, I moved up to Ithaca, New York, upstate New York, uh, during the 
when the pandemic started to get out of the city and Ithaca's quiet and I had a lot of time and I also could not get into the library. I couldn't get into my office. Uh, I couldn't do the kind of heavily researched, documented writing that I usually do because the resources weren't available. Um, and so I, th I needed a project to keep me sane during that mm. period. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to take on the collection of questions that I get asked all the time that invariably surprise me. How did you get started on this? How did you get interested in food? How did you get interested in food politics? Were there any turning points? Were there any special things that happened? Um, what do you eat? <laughs> you know, what do you think about food? And then from, from students, how do I have a career like yours? What do I have to do to do what you did? How do you feel about taking on the food industry? Um, how do you feel? about mm. things. And it was the how do you feel questions that, and they came up all the time. I can't even tell you how often these questions come up several times a week, every week, from students, from reporters, from friends, from colleagues. I thought, well, maybe it's time to take this up and try to deal with it in a systematic way. And so a memoir, as I understand it, and I've read a lot of memoirs and I've talked to people who teach about memoir writing, um, is a it, it has to have a purpose. It has to have a question that it, it addresses, and it needs to be tightly focused about those particular issues. And that's what I tried to do. So it is not a, a traditional biography in the sense I did this, I did this, I did this sequentially. It's um, it's picked and chosen, and highly selected examples of things that happened in my past, in my, uh, in my childhood, in my early education, in my later education, in my jobs, that led to where I am today. And one of the questions uh, that I think the book answers, and the reason that it's called Slow Cooked, is it, it took me a long time. Uh, my book, Food Politics, came out in 2002. I was 66 years old. Um, you know, it's this was a very, very late in life career. And that also requires an explanation. Um, and it's turned out to be a, an aspect of the book that turns out to be, um, I'm told, inspiring to young people who don't know what they want to do and feel like they have to decide right away. And if they don't decide right away, they've made an irreparable mistake. And here I'm talking about decades of doing one thing after another without knowing where it was going to lead and finally figuring it out when the opportunity presented itself. Um, so, so that I think was, is the complicated answer to your question. And, and I would also say that um, it has, it has a big women's issue too, because I grew, I came of age during the period in the 1950s when women didn't have career options. Or if they did, I certainly didn't know them. Um, when I was in high school and during my college years, there was one thing that women were supposed to do, and that was to get married and have kids. 
And if they had a job at all, it was to support their husband's work. Um, and I didn't fit very well into any of that, although I got married and had kids just like everybody else. But the uh, a lot of the book is about having to deal with that kind of social environment, which, of course, has changed enormously. Yes. And I would say that your book is inspiring even to people who are not young, but who are still, like me, um, kind of looking at their lives and wondering, you know, what am, what am I doing? What do I want to be when I grow up? And and finding, trying trying to find that answer. And I, I think your book does an incredible job of, of telling your story, Miriam. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, work, I worked hard on it. Well, I can tell you did. And for all those note nerds out there, your book does have endnotes to it. Yeah, which, not very many. Not very many. No, I know. <laughs> I know compared to your other books, it's it's a minimal, minimal section of endnotes, but they're still there, which I have to admit, I got quite a kick out of it because I thought, wow, she never stops. I mean, no, you know, can't stop. Endnotes, endnotes here, too. So, so as I was reading your book, I mean, I was I was really struck by the word choice, which comes up. And, and you talk about how when you were living this, and I guess as you were living this, because you're still living it, um, you often didn't know that you had choices. And, and for, I think for, for eaters, and, and this is something else that I saw in the book, you write about how, especially when it comes to the notion of choice for the individual eater, the, the onus of choice is put on on you. It's put on you as an eater. And so I was wondering you know, how you think about those two things, especially given that right now um, there are so many supposed choices that we have when we go to the grocery store. There, there are aisles filled with packages and yet, at the same time, we live in a society where the message seems to be that if you are overweight, and, and of course there's a whole issue of what does overweight mean, um, if you are diabetic, if you can't afford organic, if you can't afford to buy groceries, that somehow it is your problem. It is your fault. It has nothing to do with the greater system out there. So I was wondering if you could if you could just talk to me about that. Well, that's been true since the 15th century poor laws in in, in Great Britain when uh, the British government first devised laws that were going to govern charity to the poor. Um, the attitude was that the poor were poor by choice, that if they only got jobs and went to work or, you know, became part of the Industrial Revolution or whatever it was at the time, um, there was no assumption that people were poor because of accident of birth, because they were, you know, born into the wrong family, because tragedy occurred because they had bad luck. They were victims of whatever the system was. Um, that has never changed. I mean, we still have those kinds of attitudes towards the poor. And yet, even when, you know, when we realize that I, what 
that our system is set up so that once you are in a an economic track, getting out of that economic track is extremely difficult. Um, we just don't make it easy for reasons of education, health, family support, um, the kinds of things you learn at home, the ability to have health care. I mean, all of these things that keep people poor in our society um, that are the subjects of enormous advocacy. Lots and lots of people are trying to change those systems, but that's the system we're up against. And even if you have money, what does it mean to go into a grocery store and see a wall of flavored waters um, from two or three different manufacturers in 20 different flavors? What does it mean? to make a choice of that. Is that really a choice? Um, you know, you're paying $5 for six cans of this stuff. Is that, does that make sense? Um, you know, what is that about? And uh, so there's lots of analyses of these kinds of things. It's the kind of analysis that I'm interested in doing. Um, but, you know, from my own childhood, the question of choice was, I didn't think I had any. You know, we didn't have any money in my family. My father died when I was 12, the, um, the, uh, or 13. And the, uh, and my mother, you know, didn't have very much money and came from a poor family. Nobody had ever gone to college. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I mean, there were, I could go to college, but the lim the choices of where I could go to college were extremely limited. And the mainly by my imagination in retrospect, you know, that was one of the discoveries of, of doing this exercise was that, you know, looking back on it, I could see that, uh, that my feelings about lack of choices were due, first of all, to lack of imagination and also to the fact that if I tried to break out of the narrow choices that I thought I had, I got slapped down pretty hard. So the, uh, you know, I think that took a long time to overcome. I look back on it and think, what an idiot. Well, there you go. I was young. What can I say? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Marion, to me, you are like the energizer bunny of, you know, food studies. I mean, you just keep going. You've been at it for a while and and you just keep doing it. I like doing it. Oh, that's great. You know, it's not it doesn't you know, it's the old adage about. Um, if it's fun, it's not work. Right, it's not work. Right. It's not work. I'm, you know, I'm doing what I, what I really, really, really like to do. I like writing books. I like spending a couple of hours a day doing research and writing, um, and then doing other things. Um, I like public speaking. I like talking to reporters. <laughs> I, you know, I like, I, I like writing a blog. I like a lot of what I do. Well, it's great. Uh, the, um, so. That, that makes it fun. Right. If you're just joining us, you are listening to the Friday, November 4th, 2022 edition of A Public Affair. This is Patty Peltakos, and I'm your host this hour. I'm filling in today for regular host Esti Denur. And joining me for the hour is Marion Nessel. Marion is talking with me about her work and about her latest book, which is 
Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food in food politics. Slow Cooked is published by the University of California Press. You can find out more about it at ucpress.edu. And also, I want to just tell you, WRT listener, if you haven't checked out Marion's blog at foodpolitics.com, please do. You should have a look at that site. It's a lot of fun. So, so Marion, speaking of imagination, I just want to ask you, what would your ideal grocery store look like? And would it even be a grocery store? Oh, it would probably look more like a farmer's market. Um, You know, I actually think grocery stores are pretty good these days. That's one of the big changes in the food system that's happened over the last 25 or 30 years, is you can go to a grocery store anywhere in America and get decent food. Um, And, you know, get things other than heavily processed packaged foods. Uh, the produce sections of supermarkets are much more interesting now than they were many years ago. And, you know, if you live in a city with an international neighborhood, you can get things that you never used to be able to get or you could only get by traveling to international places. So I'm not unhappy about the grocery stores that we have. Um, I'd like to see much more... Uh, space devoted to healthier foods than some of the packaged foods, but some grocery stores do that. Um, And I think the trend towards store brands is not a bad one. If you have a store you like and it's got store brands, that means you're going to be able to buy those products at a a cheaper price. That sounds good. Um, But if I were going to change one thing, it would be the pricing. So I would like to see uh, the pricing on healthier foods lowered and the pricing on unhealthier foods be the expensive ones. But that, of course, is a complicated thing to deal with. Right now, it's the other way. Right, right. And on, on previous shows, I've talked a lot about consolidation in, in various aspects of the food industry. And so I was wondering, what is your take on consolidation within the grocery industry and the impact that that has on on us as shoppers? Well, funny you should ask, because this is the week that uh, Kroger's has proposed to buy Albertsons. um, And these are two big grocery chains, which if united would become even bigger and are doing this, they say to take on Walmart and to, which is the biggest, and to lower prices for consumers. But everybody who believes that doesn't understand how the history of mergers and acquisitions works. So there are real concerns about Kroger's buying Albertsons. For one thing, if they're both of those stores are located near each other, in cities, one of those stores is going to go out of business. Um, there are going to be big changes in terms of um, dealing with labor relations within those stores. There are some very, very funny things about the deal. I don't really understand all the financial aspects of it, but um, the uh, what is likely to happen is that Albertsons will have a big payout to its investors, it will then be in much worse financial shape. 
and Kroger's will take it over. I mean, the the complicated financial transactions involved in it are a bit beyond me, but they don't look good for the public. So the deal hasn't gone through. The Federal Trade Commission hasn't approved it. It's part of a trend in the food industry to have fewer and fewer corporations in charge of bigger and bigger slices of the food supply. And invariably, this squeezes suppliers. Walmart is famous for forcing suppliers to take very, very little money for their for what they're for what they're supplying. Um, and that hurts everybody all the way down the line. Uh, so, you know, we saw in the meatpacking industry during the pandemic when um, it became clear that the the big beef suppliers couldn't do th where three organ three beef or four beef suppliers control eighty five percent of beef in this country were able to squeeze their suppliers, cause meat producers to have terrible economic problems, have to destroy their animals, keep the packing plants open even when workers were getting sick and get the president to sign an executive order keeping the plants open. I mean, this was real power in action. So we don't have much of a history of uh, monopoly capitalism being very good for the public in this country. And uh, th so that raises lots of questions about these mergers and acquisitions. They're part of late stage capitalism and they're a big worry for people who worry about equity. Indeed. So, Marion, you spent a few years in Washington, D.C., in an office, I believe, in the Department of Health and Human Services? Yes. When you were there? Yeah. And, and I, you know, you bring this up in the book, but over here we have the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA. And the USDA is working, for the most part, with constituents who are, are farmers, um, or at least food producers of some sort. Then you have Health and Human Services with is dealing kind of with the outcomes of everything that happens after the food leaves the farm and is actually consumed by people. And then there's the FDA, which has a role in all of this, too. And it seems like between the USDA, which has not really been doing much, although it, it is getting better, um, about dealing with oversupply of of commodity crops, including here in Wisconsin, dairy, which is a big issue. Um, but that there are there are all sorts of synthetic chemicals going into our food when the food is being produced. And then, of course, for a lot of the food that uh, people find in the grocery store, it has gone through various forms of processing and has, perhaps more chemicals added to it. So so do you think that there is any any hope of a, a dialogue between the USDA, the FDA, and Health and Human Services dealing with the healthfulness of the food that we are eating and the food that is being produced? 
Well, you're asking a food system question, it seems to me. Um, food system is the way we answer questions like that th these days. Food system refers to everything that happens to a food from the time it's produced, transported, processed, sold, consumed, wasted. Um, and you can't really talk about one part of that without talking about the other part. Um, so you're talking about the structure of food oversight in Washington, which is divided basically between, I would say, three agencies, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Health and Human Services, which includes the FDA. The FDA is part of the public health hmm. service within, the, within Health and Human Services, and then the Environmental Protection Agency, which deals with the environmental aspects of it. Um, and there have been concerns about the safety of the food supply, for decades and decades and decades, the Government Accountability Office has called on the government to try to reorganize so at least food safety, which is mainly divided between USDA and FDA, um, could be consolidated into one unit that oversees food safety because the USDA does animals and FDA does everything else, uh, as if they're not interacting with each other, as if animal waste doesn't get on vegetables and cause people to become sick. Um, but for the oversight in general, uh, we're going back to history here. And the history starts in 1906 when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, which as incredible as it may seem, The Jungle came out in the early months of 1906, and by the end of the year, Congress had passed two food safety laws, um, both of which dealt with the Department of Agriculture. And then later, the FDA's piece split off from the Department of Agriculture and went into Health and Human Services. So there's this ancient history that we're still dealing with that doesn't really deal with the present food supply. The Department of Agriculture's function is to make sure there's enough food to feed everybody in the country. And it has become, in many ways, a tool of industrial agriculture. Um, industrial agriculture means corn, soybeans, cotton, uh, canola oil, those kinds of things. Mainly feed for animals, fuel for automobiles, and not having very much to do with food for people. That needs to change, in my view. The FDA is oversight of foods and drugs. Most of what it does is drugs. Food has always been kind of a, a stepchild in the agency. It's never gotten the kind of attention or resources that it needs. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the FDA right now to change that. Um, and the EPA very much depends on who's in power, whether it uh, enforces environmental laws or not. So there needs to be some kind of coordination among all of these agencies. That's very difficult to do at the federal level. There are attempts to do that. There are committees of the FDA that meet with committees of the USDA regularly, particularly around food safety. But without real structural change, it's very, very difficult to do that. There's a big call right now for, uh, to create a food institute in Washington that would presumably absorb 
uh, some of the functions of these various agencies, but nobody wants to give it up. And if you look at the Department of Agriculture, for example, because of the peculiarities of history, 80% of the Department of Agriculture's budget goes to food stamps, the Supplemental Nutrition um, assistance program, and only 20% goes to industrial agriculture with small amounts for other kinds of agriculture. So it's a mess. Um, I mean, it's really a mess. And cleaning it up is not something that's going to be easy or even possible, I think. Oh, okay. So, Marion, do you think that doctors are paying more attention to nutrition and diet now than when you first got started teaching doctors about nutrition? <laughs> no, <laughs> that makes me laugh. The uh, When I started, when I was at UC San Francisco teaching nutrition to medical students in the mid-1970s, it had been 20 years since the American Medical Association held its first conference on uh, teaching nutrition to medicals in, in medical schools. And we are now how many years later? many, many decades later, and the same arguments are still coming up. Uh, the White House Conference on a hunger, nutri hunger, Nutrition, and Health that was held about a month ago in Washington had as one of the things it was talking about the need to teach doctors about nutrition, but the same barriers that existed 40 or 50 years ago still exist. There's no reimbursement for prevention Doctors aren't taught prevention, and now the way our healthcare system works, doctors don't have time to talk to people about their diets. You're lucky if you get to see your doctor for 15 minutes, and your doctor's looking at a computer the whole time. Um, so it's not a very easy situation to deal with. Who's going to be teaching the nutrition? And what are they going to be teaching? Uh, these are big issues that have been discussed for decades and have never been settled. But the real problems are structural. We just don't have a healthcare system that focuses on prevention, which you would think would be better for everybody, but no. Well, okay. So, Marion, um, many people think that they are allergic to gluten and soy that they're unable to digest these foods properly. So I'm wondering, because since World War II, a lot of farm U.S. farmers have been using synthetic chemicals, um, fertilizers, insecticides, herbicides, pesticides, to increase their yields. And in the case of Roundup, um, farmers often use Roundup or glyphosate to dry their crops. So I am wondering, is it possible for scientists to take a food like a grain of corn or a soybean and analyze it for residual chemicals to find out how much of those chemicals are staying in that food? And can you then follow it as the food goes through processing? Yeah, the answer is, of course. Um, and, you know, there are agencies in the government that check foods for chemicals and they find traces of those chemicals. But the big question is, what harm are they doing? Mm -hmm. That is a much harder question to answer. For that, you would need to have a group of people who were 
you know, had certain levels of chemicals in their bodies and compare them to people who had other levels of chemicals in their bodies and follow them for a very long time. Um, that Those studies are not being done because they're too hard to do, I think. I, I don't think anybody could. It would be very, very hard for me to think up a protocol that would work in any practical sense when you're dealing with people who are not imprisoned and we're not locked up in a metabolic ward who are on their own eating all different kinds of things and behaving in all different kinds of ways and try to run a controlled trial on that. Very, very hard to say. So whereas it seems obvious that if these chemicals are bad for plants, um, there's a possibility that they're not very good for animals either. And there's certainly some associating evidence that associates these chemicals with poor outcome. Glyphosate is the most obvious. There are a lot of studies that associate glyphosate use, Roundup use, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for example, and the courts have been ruling in some um, court cases that the glyphosate is responsible and in other court cases that it's not responsible. Somehow this is in the courts, not in the scientific community. Um, the courts are, are deciding this. Uh, that's the situation that we're in, in the absence of the ability to do controlled clinical trials. You can't do a trial in which you give people glyphosate, you bathe them in glyphosate, and then look and see what happens with them. You're not allowed to do studies like that, fortunately. And so you have to rely on circumstantial evidence. There's quite a bit of circumstantial evidence, enough by now, so that some court decisions have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, you know, who were suing the company, saying that the, the chemical made them sick. Um, we certainly need less of these chemicals particularly now that they're not doing as much good as they used to, and now other chemicals have to be brought in to, to do that kind of thing. I, I mean, it's very hard for me to believe that these chemicals are good for people, but proving harm has, has proven to be very, very difficult. And that makes the politics of it very difficult when there are companies that make the chemicals and companies that use the chemicals um, who feel very strongly that they would go out of business if the chemicals didn't exist. So that's what we're up against. Right. Okay. So from your standpoint as a nutritionist, do you think that people actually are suffering some sort of reaction to these foods in part because of the synthetic chemicals that are in them? I don't know the answer to that question. I know that there are people who, uh, certainly there are people who are gluten intolerant and people who are seriously gluten intolerant and have celiac disease. I'm not sure that has anything to do with the chemicals. It has to do with the structure of the protein um, that's in wheat. Um, and there certainly is evidence that there are more people who, allergic, who are allergic to foods uh, particularly, you know, the obvious one is peanuts. You know, when I was a kid, peanut allergy was never a problem. Now peanut allergy is a big problem. Um, does that have to do with the chemicals? I have no idea. It's very hard to know. Nobody has any idea why food allergies are, are increasing. Um, it could be 
you know, I mean, you could speculate in a lot of ways. It would be great if we could run tests and test it. But those tests are very, very difficult to do. Um, but there's an easy remedy. If you think you're allergic or sensitive or having trouble with those foods, you can buy organic foods that are going to have much lower levels of chemicals. That's, that's been proven that organic foods have lower levels of chemicals and no levels of some chemicals uh, that are used in other foods. You can avoid eating foods that you think you're intolerant of. There are lots of foods around. We have lots of choices. Right. Um, so so I, I think that's the way everybody does their own experimenting. You're your own N of one is the way, <laughs> oh dear, is the way they put it. Um, it's your it's your own it's your own n of it's your own n of one um and because you do your own experiment and you try this you try that uh and see what works and i'm greatly in favor of that kind of experimentation if you're somebody who feels like you have a problem with eating certain foods don't eat them okay well there you go then if you're just joining us, you are listening to the Friday, November 4th, 2022 edition of A Public Affair. This is Patty Peltakos, and I'm your host this hour. And joining me today for the full hour is guest Marion Nessel. Marion is answering all of the questions that I have about food, and I haven't really asked her many about nutrition, but we'll probably get to that too. Marion has also just published a new memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. And also, WORT listener, I just wanted to remind you that today's show was pre-recorded, so we are not taking your questions and comments during this show. So, Marion, I guess kind of riffing off of the whole, you know, allergy issue, Every year, there seem to be new and different permutations of diets and a diet that is being touted as great for this, a diet that is great for that. Um, what do you think about these diets and what is the best way for, for listeners to approach what they might see in their Facebook feed or in a Twitter account about a diet? Well, I think diets are so easy that I'm a big fan of the journalist Michael Pollan, who can describe a healthy diet in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Really, that takes care of it as long as you define food as something that's real and not terribly heavily processed. So that takes care of healthy diets in general. Then for the specific weight loss diets or other kinds of diets like paleo, keto, or any of the others that are really popular these days, you look to see how closely they adhere to eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, to the extent that they do, uh, they're probably pretty healthy. But even the, um, the other, the ones that seem more extreme work for some people and I think there are enormous numbers of ways in which you can put, to a, put together a diet that really feels good, tastes good, um, meets your physiological needs, is healthy, um, you know, and, and is good for you and the planet as well. I tend to be a dietary agnostic. If you find a diet that works for you, go for it. So, Marion, what do you think about things like fake meat and, as I was just reading about, over the weekend in The Guardian, 
Now, fake fish. I mean, where do those fall into the category of food? Well, they don't for me. They fall into the category of food-like objects. And the... um, that also a Michael Pollan term, which I love using. The, um, it's very hard to know what to make of them. Uh, there's an argument that they're much better for the environment. And, you know, we have a big problem with there are no more fish in the sea anyway, uh, so that fishing has become entirely farmed, about which there are many, many issues. But these are concoctions of chemicals, um, often with uh, 20 or more chemicals put together in some kind of, uh, you know, in some kind of meat or fish or cheese or um, or whatever. And the I have one of my food rules is don't eat anything artificial. And so they go under the heading, in my mind, of artificial. I'm not interested in eating them. Uh, if I'm not a vegetarian, but I lean largely towards a plant-based diet, I don't feel the need to eat an artificial meat. If I want to eat a meat, I'll eat a meat. I, don't, I, I just don't feel any kind of need for it. I, I understand why some people do. As one mother explained to me, now that there are these artificial meats, she can take her kid to a fast food restaurant. Um, but I don't particularly want to take my kid to a fast food res- restaurant. So it, it, they're kind of off my radar. I'm waiting to see how healthy they are. I'm waiting to see how environmentally sustainable they are. Um, I'm, I think the jury is still out, but they're off my radar. Okay. Personally. So, but I'm not their core customer, obviously. Well, no, probably not. Probably not. So, Marion, um, the whole issue of food labeling and packaging seems to me to be one where the consumer has to really spend so much time kind of sorting through packages. And I, I want to give an example that I, I went to the grocery store and, and bought quite recently. Um, I wasn't paying totally close attention, but I, I do like dried cranberries. And I had bought some at the co-op and saw, okay, you know, they've got organic cranberries, organic sugar, organic sunflower oil. So three, three ingredients, but of course it's, it's all organic. And I was thinking, well, you know, I, I usually don't pay much attention because we don't use these very often, but you know, it's got kind of a lot of sugar. Maybe I should be paying more attention to that. So I, I went to a different grocery store, and I picked up a package, and I admit I was lured in by the packaging of Ocean Spray Craisins, 50% less sugar. And I thought, whoa, how did they do that? Okay. And I got, I got the package home where I spent more time looking at it and read the list of ingredients. Dried cranberries, and in parentheses, cranberries, sugar, soluble corn fiber, glycerin, sucralose. And I said, oh man, okay. So sugar on these is still the second ingredient. And I guess the reason they have less sugar, maybe, is they've got sucralose in them. I don't understand. And then the packaging says refined sunflower oil is used as a processing aid. So we have 
we have the one package, which has three ingredients, including a lot of sugar. And then we have another package, which has like seven ingredients and still what seems like a whole lot of sugar. So so what are shoppers to do and what do you make of this? Well, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So you want foods with the fewest ingredients, the least amount of processing. Cranberries are tricky because they're very, very, very tart. Yes. Um, yes. They scream for sugar um, and they need sugar. And if you're going to eat them, you've got to eat them with sugar or artificial sweeteners if you prefer. I don't prefer because I have this food rule, don't eat anything artificial. I want to eat things that my body knows how to metabolize. Um, and I try to keep sugar down to a minimum, but I like sugar and I like the way it tastes. And I just try not to eat too much of it. Um, and I'm someone who is able to do that. And I understand that there are people who are not able to do that. Um, so I'm, you know, again, very sympathetic to the problem. But I try not to buy very much processed food. If you have to sit there and do a deconstruction of the label, you're dealing with a processed food product. Um, and we now know that people who eat a lot of highly processed foods um, have an, a highly associated risk of gaining weight, uh, having weight-related diseases such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, are at greater risk for COVID-19. Um, and there's one fabulous controlled clinical trial that was done at NIH that shows that what are now called ultra-processed foods, which are the really highly processed ones, encourage people to um, take in more calories than they realize they're taking in. Um, and if you take in more calories, you gain weight. So we know now that these foods are the ones that people ought to minimize in their diets if they're concerned about weight gain and concerned about health. But if you're eating foods that don't have labels on them, you're eating real foods. And um, if you have the money and the time and the ability to cook, uh, that's what you, that's what would be healthier for you to eat. And so, the real question is what about everybody else? Right. Well, that's where the, that's where the arguments come in. Mm. So, so Marion, what do you say to people who, and I'm sure you've heard from people who tell you, I, I don't have time to cook. I'm working two or three jobs. It's just not mm -hmm. a part of my day. Plus, I don't have the money to be able to afford organic. Right. So what, what do you tell those people? I tell them to do the best they can. I mean, what else, what else can I do and what else can they do? They have to do the best they can. They have to figure it out for themselves. Um, you know, I mean, I could give lectures about what it's like to, to cook beans and rice. Those are very easy things to cook. Um, but I'm not telling other people what to do. Um, I'm, you know, do the best you can. Get the vegetables that you like. Get things that your kids will like. Try to vary what you're eating. Try to figure out how you can make your food budget go further. Um, you know, maybe try to find a couple of hours a week when you can cook things for the entire week if you've got refrigeration and if you've got storage capacity. But I'm very sympathetic to people, who, especially now when prices are going up so much. Mm -hmm. uh, people have to do the best they can. 
Um, and I don't, um, I don't, I'm not in any position to be judging that from the position that I'm in where I have a lot of, at this stage in my life, I have lots and lots of choices about what to eat, how to eat it, where to eat it, and how much to spend for it. Um, so the, yes, people have to do the best they can and more power to them. And what kind of help do they need? And I'm happy to help if I can. Mm. So Marion, um, you know, I've, I've been talking to you about food packaging and labeling and I, I read actually on food politics, but elsewhere that I believe it's the FDA is coming out or maybe coming out with a label for food healthy. Yes. And I was wondering what what are your thoughts on that? What do you what do you think about that? And do we need one more label, even if it's well, for healthy? Be, this will the the healthy idea it will be different than what's there now. Um, it will be available to food packaged food products that meet certain criteria. I don't think it's very important. Um, I would much rather see the kinds of things that they have in Chile and Argentina and countries in South America and in Europe where foods get graded and you know what to avoid. Either I, I actually prefer warning labels like they have in Chile, which tell you which foods are too high in calories, salt, fat, and sugar. Um, even kids can read them. Even people who can't read can read them uh, and know what they are. But our food industry has resisted any kind of designation like that. They're not even very happy about the healthy label, but they may have to live with that. Um, and if they do live with it, it will head off warning labels. So I see it as flat out politics in action. Mm. So you have a collection of cereal boxes. I do. <laughs> a large one. I, yeah. Tell me about your collection, Marion. Well, first of all, just in case anybody's worried, it's just the boxes. I don't keep what's in them. Um, so I've had some of them for a very long time, and it's not 15 or 20-year-old cereal, although that would be interesting. Um, I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very interested in cereal boxes because they have so much information about the current regulatory status of food labeling. And I got interested in this because when the new food labels came out in the early 1990s, I could not remember what old food labels looked like. And because it was all pre-internet, it's very hard to find on the internet examples of food labels for old products before 1990. It's just really hard to find. And I couldn't do it. I needed one for something. And I ended up um, through a wonderful combination of circumstances being gifted by Kellogg's a set of facsimiles of three different cereals from the time they were first produced until the year I got them. And so I can look back and I want to see the whole box because I want to see not only the nutrition facts information, but also what kinds of things are being promoted, what, what the health claims are, what kinds of things the company is saying about what this cereal does for health or the environment or whatever. And they're a, a research tool that I find extremely helpful and very entertaining, and I'm trying to decide what to do with them. Oh, wow. 
So are, are you still collecting these boxes? Oh, yeah, I pick them up. Although I have to say, since the FDA started cracking down on health claims, they're not nearly as much fun as they used to be. Oh. Um, I mean, they look, they look pretty much the same from year to year. And you can hardly find a health claim beyond heart disease on Cheerios. Um, mostly they're cartoons. There's still cartoons on them or things about they've got fiber or they're sustainable or something or they're organic. But the kinds of health claims that used to be on them, which were endorsements from the American Heart Association or the American Diabetes Association or um, great big immunity banners, um, you know, this or cognitive function banners. You just don't see those anymore since the FDA started cracking down. Marion, we are almost out of time. And I, I just have one last question for you. And that's, you know, Tuesday, November 8th is Election Day. And you have you have written about voting with your fork, but also voting. So do you have any any last words for WORT listeners about voting? Yes, vote. Um, I'm not going to be in New York on November 8th, so I've already sent in my absentee ballot. Absentee ballots are really easy to get. Just say absentee ballot in your town and you can get one if you and vote. Um, if you think you don't want to bother going to a voting booth, get the absentee ballot. Vote. It's very, very important. This is... I know it doesn't seem, sometimes it doesn't seem like it's important, but I think this election really counts. Okay. Well, Marion Nessel, it has been such a pleasure hosting you for this hour. Thank you so much for joining me on today's edition of A Public Affair. Well, thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure for me, too. Okay. So, WRT listener, that wraps up this edition of A Public Affair. Again, thanks so much to Marian Nessel, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University, for joining me on today's show. Please get yourself a copy of Marian's most recent book, her memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics, and do check out her blog at foodpolitics.com and her other books. Please tune in on Monday for A Public Affair with host Douglas Haynes. And up next, it's Mel and Floyd. Prisoners, if you can't afford to feed none, don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you cannot get your dough back. The apathetic bullshit, send them all your Prozac. I will not climb into your telephone tree, and hell no, you cannot put me on hold. It's the same recorded message you've been singing all along. Keep handing us the Bible while you're walking off with all the gold. The bureaucratic office sends you merry go rounding while the KKK police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding, but the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. Live in the
interact with come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted we come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported.